There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guests today are General George W. Casey Jr. and Dr. Joel Coopersmith. They're the co-authors of the book, Supporting Veterans After 50 Years of the All-Volunteer Force and 20 Years of War, Ideas Moving Forward. Dr. Coopersmith is Professor of Medicine and Director of Georgetown University's Veteran Initiatives. He has written more than 170 publications, including three books. A former professor of medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, Dr. Cooper Smith was the dean of Texas Tech University's School of Medicine and Biomedical Graduate School before directing the Veterans Administration's vast medical research program from 2005 to 2013, which was the longest tenure ever. Under his transformational leadership, accomplishments included the Million Veteran Program, which is now the world's largest health system genetic repository, pioneering research projects, development of new research methods, and unique first-time collaborative efforts. General George W. Casey Jr. served 41 years in the United States Army and was the 36th Army Chief of Staff. He led the Army from 2007 to 2011 and is widely credited with restoring balance to a war-weary Army and leading the transformation to keep it relevant in the 21st century. General Casey was and is a stalwart advocate for military families, wounded soldiers, and survivors of the fallen. He's taken on the tough issues of suicide and reducing the stigma attached to combat stress. Prior to his service as Army Chief of Staff, General Casey commanded the multinational force Iraq, a coalition of more than 30 countries, and he guided the Iraq mission through its toughest days. An expert on strategic leadership, he currently lectures on leadership at the S.C. Johnson College of Business at Cornell University and the leaders of national and multinational corporations. He also lectures on international relations at the Corbell School at the University of Denver, where he is the Rice Family Professor of Practice. General Casey serves on several boards, including the USO Board of Governors, of which he is the chairman. General Casey and Dr. Coopersmith, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you. Nice to be here. The two of you have written, Supporting Veterans After 50 Years of the All-Volunteer Force and 20 Years of War, Ideas Moving Forward with many of the ideas coming from a group of experts from various backgrounds. Who was involved? How did the group come together? And what did the process look like? Well, um, Joel, uh, we, um, this, uh, this is a topic that really hasn't been discussed at least nearly as much as it should, veterans of the all-volunteer force. There has been and will be a lot of discussions about the force readiness and other appropriate topics. But as far as veterans, this hadn't been discussed. So we uh, got together uh, a group of individuals who had been very prominent in veterans' issues. Uh, they had been prominent in formulating policy and in, in implementing policy. And I think that both are very important. They included uh, high VA officials, three former secretaries and others. They included members of Congress. They included directors of major veterans uh, service organizations, academia, industry, media, uh, and, and some others. And um, we had a, a, a workshop. We conducted a workshop about a year ago, a little over a year ago, uh, 
And out of that workshop came this book. And what we did is a little bit different from what is usually done. We did not attempt to form a consensus. We just attempted to get what are their ideas and what are, how do they think policy should be formulated for the future for these veterans of the all-volunteer force. We also, of course, discussed the differences between veterans of the all-volunteer force and those previous, their capabilities, their issues, and many other things of that nature. And that's how this book came. And we, we compiled all this, and that's how this book came to be. I, I guess I'd also just kick in here that the, the, the basic premise was that you don't do anything for 50 years without learning how to do it better, smarter, cheaper. And as, as someone who came in the Army in 1971, just a, a couple of years before the all-volunteer force came into existence and, and lived through the startup, uh, it really struck me that that after 50 years, we, we need to think differently about how we deal with things. And we, we needed to in, in my my view, kind of prime the pump through this this book and these discussions to to generate a national discussion about okay, how can how can we think differently about veterans issues, and in and learn from the challenges of the past and envision opportunities for the future, and, and I, it, it's something that that I think is even more topical than when we started writing the book, as you're reading and hearing about the. The, the enlistment issues that the that the services are are currently um, un, uh, undergoing, and we will come back to this, I'm sure, in, in more depth in in, in our conversations. Uh, but I believe that's significantly tied to the way the American people perceive veterans and perceive how veterans are treated. General Casey, you just mentioned how you're trying to begin a national discussion here. And in particular, leading up to the 50th anniversary of the All-Volunteer Force. General Casey, set the stage for us, please. What is the All-Volunteer Force? How and why did it come about? And when is that anniversary? Yeah. So, so we kind of went back and, and, and read the history. And, and it really has its roots in a campaign promise by Richard Nixon during his campaign in 1968 to end the draft. So obviously, if you ended the draft, you had to have a way of, of, of sustaining the military. And so he had a former Secretary of Defense, Thomas Gates, uh, lead a commission. Uh, and the commission reported out in, in, in 1970. It was interesting. Gates, as the story is, is told, went into that job thinking this was not a good idea. And after studying it, came back and, and made a recommendation that, that to the president that it was, in fact, uh, feasible. Um, they they, uh, they weren't quite ready to go in uh, June of 1971 when the Selective Service Act expired. So there was another political battle that went on to extend it for, for two years so they could get to 70, uh, June of the 30th, uh, 1973, which they, they ultimately got passed. And so when the Selective Service Act expi expired on the 30th of June, 1973, the next day we had a we had an all-volunteer force, or we had we started the the all-volunteer force, and there were no further conscriptions. So, and, and having lived through that, uh, and, and one of our panel members, uh, Senator Jack Reed, uh, also lived through that as a captain in the 82nd Airborne. Uh, it was a rocky start. Uh, 
the Department of Defense un underinvested in the recruiting, uh, we had some real challenges and uh, we had some cultural issues that had to be overcome. Uh, but I'll tell you, by the by the mid 80s, uh, it, it really had started to to take hold. And I think you saw the output in uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm in 91. Joel. Yeah, I think one of the things that happened it was a technological revolution of the military, and that was crucial. And that is very crucial to how we consider veterans who are the beneficiaries of that technological revolution. Dr. Cooper Smith, you mentioned how when you, you got the group together for the workshop, you had former secretaries of the VA, former members of Congress. How common or uncommon is a group like that in Washington and how helpful is something like that to sort through and hopefully solve problems? Well, it's rare. <laughs> and a number of individuals, a number of participants said that. Uh, one who was in a very high VA position said he wished he had had this before he started. <laughs> as, as most of us know, starting, no matter what level, starting in, in Washington, the first day you have emergencies. You know, if you're in a fairly high position and you never have a chance to reflect and I think this was a chance to reflect, look at the policies and look how to change them. And the other unique aspect was all the different uh, components that we put together. I mean, VA, Congress, uh, the VSOs, they talked to each other, but not the way they did here. And I, I wanna say that we also brought together people of very different opinion, but they didn't argue. They discussed these issues. It was very, a uh, very um, enlightening discussion, in fact. And that's why we got so much out of it. And that's why we decided to write the book, because the discussion was at a very high level. Yeah, Chris, I don't know if you've ever been to an interagency meeting in Washington. I've had uh, the pleasure. Air quotes around well, pleasure. <laughs> you know, right? Nine out of the 12 people in the room are just reading their, their agency talking points. <laughs> They're not listening to anything anybody else says. They're just trying to defend their position. <laughs> and they're they're happy if they leave without their agency losing any money. <laughs> we tried to get away from all that and just allow people to express their views. And and there was there were disagreements. It was but but they were respectful disagreements. And frankly, uh, respectful disagreements for me have have always sharpened my thinking on on issues. And for both of you, do you think they were respectful disagreements because? Everyone there on that committee is no longer in a position in Washington. So they're able to speak more freely. And to your point, General, not going to your talking points and save your billion dollar budget. Um, let me just interject that we, we kind of designed it that way <laughs> uh, because former um, officials will speak more, you know, openly. They can. I, I remember that, I, I don't know how both of you felt, but I remember when I left government service, the next day I felt wonderful. I could say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think this was reflected. But the, the other thing I, I think, and Joel just alluded to it, is, is the way it was set up. And, and the way it was set up, we would have two to three presentations of about seven to 10 minutes about, about topics. So they would, they would frame the issues. And then when they, when they, those presentations are over, we have a 30 minute discussion of the issues. And then we do the same thing again. So, so we'd have two series of presentations, two discussion periods, and then we conclude the whole thing 
with discussions of the whole of the whole topic. It was actually fairly productive. Fairly productive in Washington. What a great concept. <laughs> <laughs> so how are veterans who volunteered for the military different from those who were drafted? You know, were they or are they motivated by different reasons? Well, there, there's a lot of differences. I, um, for one, the selectivity. Only about 30% of those between 18, ages 18 to 24 uh, are eligible, would be considered eligible for service. Now, this will vary a bit and may vary now a bit that there's more difficulty in recruiting, but, but that was true. There are much fewer in number. There was a, a total uh, in about 1980, there were 28.5 million veterans. Now there are 18 million. Uh, they are regionally isolated. They tend to be more in the South and the West. Um, they, they have a number of, of uh, capabilities that, you know, again, because of the technology uh, that, uh, that uh, their predecessors did not have. And they are much more diverse, more women, more minorities. And this is increasing. So those are some of the differences. Yeah, and, and as and you, speak to, you speak to motivation, I mean, for the last almost 50 years now, every man and woman who's served in the military has actually had to come in and said, I want to do this. And in the last 20 years, they've done it while we were at war, knowing that, that they would go to war. So, so I mean, that speaks a lot uh, to the moral character of, of the individual who's, who's willing to step forward. Um, and not that not that all the, the the draftees that I still came in contact with in the early days of my career were, were, were bad people. They, they certainly weren't. But but there were a number, a large number, who were really difficult to deal with because they they just they didn't want to be there. Veterans may alternatively be perceived as heroes, threats, or victims. Obviously, those different perceptions impact the public's view of veterans and veterans' needs and the way veterans view themselves. Why are veterans seen in such dramatically different lights? Well, uh, do you want, I, I, let me just, I'll start. Um, the, th this was actually the title of a, of a course we gave at, um, at Georgetown, uh, and, and it was actually in the anthropology department. And first of all, they're considered heroes. And one of the points that George had made during this is the day they finish, their service, the next day they're considered differently and they may be considered victims. You know, so the heroes, heroic military heroism is something that's always been considered. They may be, they are often considered victims and uh, it's called, one person's turned with the broken veteran narrative. And that is that we constantly hear of problems that veterans have without hearing the other side. And this creates that image. Then there's an the image of threat, which um, we, we, we don't have the, the crazed Vietnam era veteran in our public eye much anymore. It's very rare. And, uh, but, but when something happens, like the attack on the Capitol of June 6th, first thing people seem to ask is how many were veterans? And when there's an, another other incidents like that, there are uh, one asks, are there veterans? And I think uh, involved. And I think this is again, an image that's out there that um, I, I think we at least during this, uh, and, and I think everybody agreed, we need to address that. Yeah, and, and, and this, this is one of the, the, I think the primary themes that we try to bring forward in the book 
is that we really have to flip the narrative. Uh, right now, the, the narrative is focused on uh, benefits and taking care of, quote, bro broken veterans, where the reality is the vast majority of veterans come out of their service uh, stronger, more capable, uh, than, than and more mature than, than when they went in. And, and so we, we have to flip that narrative because it's a double-edged sword. On, on the one hand, the veterans themselves can perceive that they may not be capable of successfully pursuing a career in business. And then you have business leaders who, because of what they read, don't think that veterans can actually cut it in the business world. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's, and it's just not the case. No, and it, it's not the case. To your point, General, you know, we spoke just before the show about my career in finance, and they are sought after leaders. You know, certainly in the financial services industry, made, many major firms specifically have programs focused on hiring veterans because of what they bring, because of their leadership skills, because of their camaraderie, because of teamwork, all of that. And so love the fact that you are trying to change that narrative and, and flip it around. Uh, and that double-edged sword, unfortunately, it's a, it's a great point. It's an accurate point. And we need more than just the financial services industry, but other industries to realize these men and women, to your point earlier again, General, were willing to sacrifice it all for this great nation. Well, they've got some skills that might be hard to transfer from your military resume to a private sector resume, but they've got skills that you need. You know, and, and Chris, I'll just build on that a little bit is, but they, they also have the skills that, that business leaders want and can't teach. You know, it, it's leadership. It, it's working in diverse teams. Uh, it's solving complex problems. It's good uh, oral and written communication. I mean, all that, all that stuff that they learn in, in the military. Life under pressure. Also, just to build on the diversity that we have women and minority individuals who have these skills. And that's something the country is looking for. You know, you also at the same time, you make an excellent point in the book that 18 million military veterans are not a homogenous group that all think and act alike. And that obviously has policy implications. Would you elaborate on that point? Well, um, I can give you, let's, let's say, give three examples of those who have been in battle. One can come out with severe PTSD and can go on to all kinds of negative, uh, <clears throat> negative consequences that can become addicted can do various things. Another can come out without PTSD. In fact, this is the more usual and be strengthened, something called post-traumatic growth, be strengthened by the experience. And then another person can come out with both. Uh, you, um, Jimmy Stewart, when he made the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, had severe PTSD. If you watch the movie with that in mind, you can see it actually in some of the scenes. And, you know, this is, and you've worked with disabilities and technological help for disabilities. We know that people can, can succeed even with severe disabilities. So those are just three examples. And then you multiply that by 18 million, and there can be all kinds of examples. And we really need to individualize our approach to benefits and a variety of other things we deal with with veterans. Yeah, and the other thing, because it's such a, a a diverse group and people are affected uh, in so many different ways by, by combat stress, combat stresses. Uh, it, it, it's, there are many different stakeholders that, it, that evolve to support those folks. So, it, so policy is increasingly complicated to come to. 
And, and so you have to deal with all these different groups who are looking at specific issues. And it just it just complicates an already complicated situation. A May 2020 white paper from the Brookings Institute about women warriors contends our armed forces, quote, need to recruit from a broader pool of Americans because some 60% of army recruits now come from military families. Meanwhile, another quote, as of 2018, the army recruited 50% of its enlisted soldiers from just 10% of the nation's high schools. The conclusion is that we have too much dependence on certain geographic areas. Joel, you mentioned earlier the, the Southwest and, and uh, the South, and the military service has become, quote, largely a family affair. General Casey, what are your thoughts when you hear those numbers and what conclusions do you draw from them about the future of the all-volunteer force? Well, um, you, you know, one of the things I think you have to go back to the beginning of this, and we, we're talking about veterans here. We're not talking about the uh, utility of the all-volunteer force concept itself. That'll Other people will look at that. But one of the things that we comment on in the book is that it has eroded our notion of service service to something larger than ourselves and that people um, don't don't feel necessarily uh, the responsibilities that go with the rights of citizenship. So there, there are less and less people who, who feel compelled to do that. And I think that's, that's a larger problem uh, for the country as a whole. Um, how's it impact on the all-volunteer force? I, I mean, this is a theme I think that'll go through this whole discussion. Uh, but we're seeing it right now. After almost 50 years of this volunteer force, um, you have a situation where uh, less about less than 25% of the 17 to 24-year-old age cohort in the country qualifies for admittance to the military without a waiver. Uh, and of that, and these are some recent numbers coming out of Department of Defense, only less than 10% actually have an indicated willingness to serve. So 10% of 25%, I mean, that's that, that's a pretty pretty low number. And then back to the, 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 the kind of broken veteran narrative that, that's, that could permeate the country. Um, an, another one of those DOD surveys of young people found that almost 60% of them felt that if they served in the military, they would leave with some type of uh, psychological or emotional problem. I mean, that's a huge determinant. And it, it goes to the, what we call the influencers, the parents and the teachers. And in that same survey, it said that only about 13% of the parents now are willing to recommend that their son or daughter should, should enter the military. And so at, at a time where uh, we're thinking about what we should do to uh, help veterans of the volunteer force, we need to think about how our narrative about veterans impacts the willingness of young people to serve. And that, that's something that is essential to the survival of a democracy. The book notes that the all-volunteer force has resulted in a very capable military, but, and I quote, the absence of compulsory service has taken a toll on the culture of national service and the idea that citizens and democracy have responsibilities as well as rights. Would either of you favor return to compulsory service well, we might favor it, but I don't think it's politically possible anymore. Um, I, you know, it was another way of expressing it was a hollowed out sense of citizenship that people have without this requirement. And, you know, both Thomas Jefferson and George Washington felt strongly that in establishing a democracy, this was, was important to serve. 
uh, I, I think we had a, there was an inspired to serve uh, a report a few years ago, which uh, discussed this. Uh, I, I think at least we, what we can at least do is make these things available and, and show how people can become better by serving their country and their fellow man. And I think that their fellow persons, and I think, I think this is the, the best we can do for it and make this available both as a military and a non-military option. Yeah, I'm, I'm there, I'm there with, with Joel. I, I do think that compulsory service is something that, that is essential uh, for the long-term health of our, of our democracy. Uh, I, and this commission that, that, that was a couple of years ago is, that Joel mentioned, but was, was looking at, at, at suggesting a period of service, six months, 12 months, uh, between graduation from high school and graduation from college. And, and it, it becomes part of the accepted movement through society that at some you, you plug out and you do something. And it can be, it doesn't need to be the military at all. It could be any number of different things, but you give back. And Joel, before we go to break, where can people find the book? Okay, if you just type in my name, Joel Coopersmith or George W. Casey, make sure you get the W in because there are <laughs> other George Casey authors <laughs> that some are find it. Uh, particularly, you can go to the Amazon website. That'll make it easier. Type in either of our name and the book will pop up. For the record, there's only one George Casey in my book. I mean, we don't need the W here. <laughs> We've been talking to Dr. Joel Coopersmith and General George W. Casey Jr. And we'll be right back after a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. If you're struggling to understand your self-worth or deal with mental health challenges, you will want to tune into Your Life Matters Today with Dr. Cliff Robertson. Dr. Cliff and his guests will help you understand and work toward what you need to build your best life. Your Life Matters Today. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. 9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward 
www.thepowerhouse.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. And my guests today are Dr. Joel Coopersmith and General George W. Casey Jr., co-authors of the book, Supporting Veterans After 50 Years of the All-Volunteer Force and 20 Years of War, Ideas Moving Forward. Gentlemen, we were talking before the break about perceptions of the veterans of America's all-volunteer forces. You cite a quote credited to George Washington, which goes, the willingness with which our young people are likely to serve in any war, no matter how justified, shall be directly proportional to how they perceive the veterans of earlier wars were treated and are appreciated. Do you believe that holds true today? Uh, I do. I think it's part of uh, why people volunteer. They they don't talk a lot about, you know, the, the, there are certain benefits, for example, that affect them. I think most particularly the college benefits in the GI Bill. But um, certainly, I think how veterans are treated and but as, as George mentioned before, how they're perceived is so important. And if they're perceived negatively constantly, I think it's, it's it just has an adverse effect. I mean, it is not a realistic they, veterans have challenges and the challenges that are in the public eye are realistic, but they're not, you know, they're not the only part of it. In fact, most veterans, uh, you look at the surveys, most people are happy they served. They, they say that to surveys. They, I think one survey, a prominent survey showed 79% would encourage young people to also serve. So these, you know, how they're treated and how they're perceived are both, in, in my view, very important. And, and, as, and as we talk, have been talking about before the break, uh, you know, we're seeing some, some of the negative perceptions of veterans coming home to roost right now and its impact on uh, enlistment in, in, in the services. And, and, and we have to be able to do that to sustain the all-volunteer force for another 50 years. And, and that it's, too, it's, it's still early, um, but, but it's, you know, it's, it's a worrisome trend for sure. In general, you, you touched on the, the negative uh, connotation around veterans and not being able to transition to the private sector. But back when you started your military career, we know that Vietnam era veterans were treated very differently than they are today. When did the perception pendulum swing back to the positive side? And I'll say overall positive side for the, I'll call the post 9-11 veteran generation. Yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, it's something I've thought a lot about because I lost my dad in Vietnam. And, you know, frankly, it was our problem. It, it, no, it, it was something that, that was, the Casey's need to deal with. And we were not necessarily, people didn't wrap their arms around the family and help us do the grief. And sadly, that's the way that, that carried over to the way the veterans returning were were treated. And I, I lived through that uh, in, when I was in college in Georgetown and, and during the early years of my military service. Where, where I think it started to change, this is my personal view, it was when the Vietnam Memorial was dedicated. And I still remember going to the memorial for the first time. We, my wife and I parked on Constitution Avenue and we started walking across the grass and I didn't see it. And I, I, I couldn't figure out where it was. And all of a sudden, I, I turned the corner and I looked down the whole wall and, and, and it was like a, a hand grabbed my throat. And when you see those names, I mean, the, the, the numbers of names there, 
and, and he realized the scope of the loss. I, I think that started changing people's views that it wasn't, it, it, it may have been a bad decision to go there to begin with, but, but the servicemen and women, they, they, they did their best. And, and so that started a, a, a transition of thinking in the United States of taking care of the servicemen and women and, and being able to separate what you thought about the war with what you thought about the servicemen and women. And the Vietnam vets, uh, the, the, the patient way that they bore this burden and, and the way that they lined up to help the, the, veteran, the, the veterans and the servicemen and women in, in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years uh, had a significant impact on the way people across the United States thought about service in, in a war. But I, but I think for me, it all started with that memorial. They, people started realizing that it wasn't the soldiers or the sailors, airmen, and Marines. It could be a political decision you could be opposed to. Um, let, let me give you a little bit of a lighter example. When I, I was in the Navy, and I always thought my Navy uniform was kind of nice and wouldn't sort of impress girls. So when I, I came back, somebody gave me the number of somebody to call, and I called there. And then he said, but don't wear your uniform. Said it was in New York. He said, "Don't wear a Navy uniform in New York." And I, I, I kind of took that up. But I, actually, one point that George makes is is now relevant again, and that's how the wars end, mm. you know, and the impact of and the impact of the end of the war in Afghanistan, for example, is is having an effect. And it's not fair. It's not that they fought the best they you know can. And they fought wonderfully. But 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 this is something that we're going to have to deal with in the future to separate that from the people who, who fought. And last week during the show, it happened to be the one year anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the guest I had on was a friend of mine. She's an Afghan refugee, served United States Navy, so now in Navy Intel. And, you know, it's a year later and people aren't talking about it anymore. The fallout from that is enormous from a mental perspective, from a military perspective, to your point, Dr. Cooper Smith, you know, how they left sort of the transition of the country and, and their service just sort of abruptly ended. And everyone gets on the plane, you fly back to the States and that's it, move on to the next chapter. And so I just made this point because it's very important that we don't forget things like that. To your point earlier, General, about Vietnam, we can't forget whether they, you know, well, back then they were there because they had to be, not because they wanted to be, but they were doing the best that they absolutely could. Our men and women fighting the war on terror did the absolute best they could. Uh, as someone who was at ground zero on 9-11, I knew firsthand why and what we were fighting for. And so I appreciate it every day and just wanted to raise that point uh, to our listeners and, and to, to commend you both for the, the work that you're doing here with this. General, earlier we are talking about some of the, the issues that veterans have transitioning from a military resume to a private sector resume. You know, you talked about veterans learning very specific skills that can apply to an industry or profession. Beyond those general specialized skills, what general assets do veterans possess that make them valuable in the civilian workplace? Well, as I said earlier, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of the skills that, that leaders, business leaders want, uh, but, but they can't teach. And, and someone has already gone to the trouble to, to ingrain these skills in, in these young men and women. And, and, and again, it, it, it's things like um, being able to solve complex problems. Understanding what it's like to work as a member of a team, 
and particularly diverse teams. Um, oral and written, effect, effective oral and written communications. I mean, all, oh, and, and oh, by the way, they, they understand what it's like to work in a values-based organization. And, and so they, those, the, all those things are in, ingrained in them. And add to that the fact that if, if they, they've been on deployments, they've been exposed to really hard things, and, and they're not cowed by the day-to-day the -day environment that they have to work on. I, I teach up at Cornell, and they, they had me judge a crisis action competition for it was a business crisis action competition. And I read this. I read this crisis, this business crisis, and I looked at it. And I said, "This is a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> this is an hour's worth of work in Iraq, you know." <laughs> but, that, but anyway, they have those skills, and they just need the opportunity. I, and that's where the transition is so important, and and the acculturation uh, back to civilian life, so that they can use those talents. The percentages of women across the four major military branches have roughly doubled in the last generation. Even today, the total is only 16%, but obviously that's still a very large number of veterans. As the group reviewed the different categories of issues, which ones tend to have the most influence on the personal and professional well-being and success of female veterans? Well, being in the, in the medical part, um, I think uh, we still, I think the VA still has a lot of work to do in making uh, for women-friendly VA medical centers. There's a certain amount of harassment that occurs, often from other veterans, actually. Uh, there's a, a, just a, a, a kind of a <clears throat> specialized services that women may need, may, may or may not be there. I think there's a, you know, the Deborah Sampson law has helped. And I think the um, <clears throat> Mission Act has helped in getting some of these services, ability to get some of these services outside the VA. But that's a very big issue for, for women veterans. And um, let me just add one, a couple more. One is a, a history of military sexual trauma, which is also important. But the, the acculturation, the culture of, um, Women veterans, many women veterans will say that when they say they're a veteran, they're just not treated the same way as when a male says that he's been a veteran. You know, there may be a heroic, but it's kind of a why did you do that kind of attitude that our culture has about women who serve in the military. And that is very important to change. I think it's beginning to change, but I think that's a very important thing to work on. Yeah, and, and what we're seeing, more more women and the number of women is expected, women veterans is, is expected to double by 2040. And, and you're getting more minorities coming in. So you're you're getting far more diversity and, and you're getting the, the kind of people that business is looking for, capable, diverse workforce uh, coming out of the military. Something that jumped off the page of your book to me has a direct effect on the veterans of foreign wars and American Legion both of which are struggling with its membership. It also relates directly to female veterans. You note that today's married veterans, quote, tend to want to participate in activities with families rather than gather in an old style veterans hall. Do you think that means the demise of the VFW and American Legion are inevitable or can they use your group's information to reinvent and regenerate themselves? We actually make the point in the book uh, for, for the, the big six veteran organizations, while their membership is declining, their influence isn't. 
and they, they still play a very significant role in moving veterans issues forward. Uh, we also found that they can be more successful if they work together instead of all, all, all the separate entities. And are they congressionally mandated, the, the big six? Are they receiving government funding? Um, they, they, uh, they're involved with the budgetary processes okay. and, and, and that sort of thing. So they have a lot of influence. Um, yeah, and I mean, they'll always, you know, we all need advocacy in a democracy. That's an important aspect of democracy. And they, the veterans organizations have done it very well. But they do, as you said, have to adapt to the two veteran family, as it were, uh, that's now common. And this is true in every, it's true in the medical profession. Uh, we have two physician families, very common. Um, they have to adapt to, you know, the IT uh, <clears throat> expertise of these veterans. It's not the same. They're not, they don't approach the VA the same as, as their forebearers. And, and there are many other differences. So I think that the, uh, uh, they should read some of the things in our book so that they can, uh, you know, the, we offer a lot of, a lot of uh, advice or at least a lot of policies that would be helpful in their adaptation. And I think they will adapt. I, I, if they, you know, they know that they have to do it to survive. Yeah, and I, I would go further and say that they are adapting. I actually am a member of VFW Post 1. In, in Denver, Colorado, you mentioned I teach out at the Corbell School. I go out there, I go by one, usually once a year and see them, but you know, they, they're out there, they're, they're doing yoga in, 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 the, in the open areas there, right? But it's, they're not sitting around a bar. Having <laughs> That's definitely changed the perception, veterans doing yoga versus uh, having a cold beer in a dark hall. How has our increased reliance on the National Guard and Reserves to fight our wars change the composition and maybe the needs of our all-volunteer forces veterans today? Yeah, this is this is, is really interesting to me, especially with, with the elimination of the draft, because the draft is, is the way that you rapidly expand the armed forces in a crisis. Without a draft, you have to rely on, on the readiness of the Guard and Reserve. And nowhere did we see that more clearly than what happened after September 11th, where we significantly increased our reliance uh, on the Guard and Reserve to fill the gaps in, in, in the active forces, where, where they actually became part of the rotational forces to Iraq and Afghanistan. And as a result of that, they're, they're, requirements for uh, post-service uh, assistance uh, have risen uh, significantly. And it's harder for them because they're not sitting on a big base. They're, they go back to their places in the, in, in the country. And some, sometimes they're, they're, they're all spread out in remote and rural areas. So it's, it's, it's significantly more difficult for them to get the care and services that they need uh, to deal with the, with the things that happen during the military service. Advanced medical procedures and protocols are, thankfully, saving the lives of more military personnel who suffer catastrophic battlefield injuries than ever before. Men and women who would have died in past conflicts are surviving thanks to those advances, but the result is that we have more combatants returning home with lost limbs, traumatic brain injuries, blindness, and paralysis. How have government programs and the Veterans Administration adjusted to those new realities, and are they doing enough for those veterans? 
Well, you can never do enough for those veterans. I mean, let's start that way. Uh, this is, uh, and, and you know, you have worked in this area, done great work uh, to bring technology. And that's, that's we really, I think both the research aspect and the just bringing the clinical aspect to veterans are a very important thing for the VA to do. They do it. Uh, I certainly, they could do more. And I think uh, they, they realize that. And they, you know, they, they I, I think that this is a, a major uh, priority for them. Uh, and they're just wonderful things. I mean, I worked uh, with the uh, computer, brain computer interface, where, you know, you can think a thought and it can move an artificial limb. I mean, it's just a wonderful thing. And if, once it gets fully developed, it'll have amazing effect on people's ability to do things with lost limbs. Um, and, and there are many other advances. There are advances for the blind and have, uh, you, know, th- you know, floor designs so that the blind person can actually sort of see things. And it, it's just amazing what, what, what um, can be done and is being done. And um, <clears throat> I think we, um, I think it's really important both to support the research on this and the development of this, as well as the, uh, the giving it to people. And I would just add to that, it's not just the VA and the government. It's the public-private partnerships uh, that can help fill the the gaps in the system. I was just, last week, I was at something called the Simpson Cup at Baltus Rawls, a big golf course in New New Jersey. Uh, And it was a competition between wounded uh, British soldiers and wounded servicemen and, and, and and women and, and wounded American men and women. And they all went out there and they competed against each other in a Ryder Cup format, but it was all set up and hosted by the club there. And uh, it was it, it was significant. And just to, to see these men and women who probably at one point in the, after they were wounded thought, I'll probably never compete again, but they're out there competing for their country uh, in, in a golf tournament. That's awesome. And I didn't know about that's fantastic. And Julia you talked about some of the medical advances in technology. You know, one thing I like to to tout promote, there's something which you both are aware of called DARPA, which is not part of Department of Defense, but their job is to think of the battlefield 30 years from now and build it today. And they've created things like the internet, sorry, it wasn't Al Gore, uh, GPS, things like that. And I had the the pleasure of meeting them uh, going down there about five or six years ago and trying something on for a, um, a veteran who had lost an upper limb and it's all virtual reality and you stick your hand out and you like, you grab a doorknob and you turn it. And the veteran I was with, when he did it, he started to cry, he lost his arm in Vietnam. He said, that's the first time I've been able to feel in my right hand in over 30 years. Yeah. And so to your point, Joel, it's that real, that it's hardwired to your body, hardwired to your brain, that we're giving them their life back, that they sacrificed for us um, and certainly long overdue. Yeah, we, we worked, actually, I worked on the earlier, I, we, we uh, oversaw the work on the earlier phase of that, the, the so-called DECA arm. And yeah, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, um, the, the the feeling of it is just amazing what you said, how they can, it just brings back a memory of being a life as it was for them. Well, you mentioned the DECA arm, Dean Kamen was the founder of that. He was one of our early guests on and I've been working with him for several years on, on what's called the Luke arm because it looks like Luke Skywalker's arm from Star Wars. And so uh, thank you for your work in that. And it is just phenomenal. You know, yeah. As our World War II Korean conflict and Vietnam veterans pass away in increasing numbers, 
Some people argue the VA budget should also be reduced proportionately. Are they right, or is there a counterargument? I, mean, well, I, think, I, think it, I think it's going to be one of the, the challenges because as the veteran population uh, gets smaller, it also gets older. And then the cost of sustaining an older population um, goes up. And, and, and so, I, but people, one, one of the things I learned, frankly, in, in doing this book was that um, the, the cost of supporting veterans historically from, from our past wars uh, amount to about a, a, a third to a half of the cost of the war. And so if you think about what the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan cost us, what's a third to a half of that? That's, a, that's an awful lot of money still, still to be expended. And, and some of the things we discussed earlier uh, will affect that. You know, the, the fewer number of veterans, the um, less, I don't know if we mentioned this, but there are less veterans in Congress now all of which affect uh, advocacy for veterans, which, uh, you know, I, I think there's, and with the wars ending and how they ended, I think there are, you know, a number of participants expressed concern about that. <laughs> and your point about veterans in Congress, I know of a few groups in Washington, they're, they're out there solely, their purpose is to recruit veterans to run for higher office. And so again, general to your point a few times about leadership skills and traits, that's exactly who you want to be out there to to think and work in that team atmosphere under pressure uh, and to collaborate to get things done. You know, I've worked with a couple of, there's a couple of organizations of, of veterans in Congress, bipartisan groups that, that work together to get things done. Exactly what you just said, Chris. You know, and, and back to your earlier point, Joel, about the group, you make the point that no attempt within your group was made to reach a consensus of views on different issues. Why not? Well, we thought this was the beginning of the discussion, you know, and that to start the discussion, we need to put these issues on the table. And we had people who had talked the talk and walked the walk of dealing with policy. I mean, it is, and that's very important. Once you deal with policy and realize how hard it is to affect change, you get a, a maturity about this that, that's much greater than somebody who hasn't done that. And I think that, so, so that's, we, we kind of wanted to start things rather than complete them with a finished product as, as a kind of a recommendation. And we hope that this will be taken up and, you know, and, and will inform uh, discussions in Congress, discussions in state legislatures, which are, by the way, very important for a lot of these things. Uh, discussions by VSOs, which, which are already ongoing. And as George mentioned, they are working on these things. Uh, and, and, and also academia and think tanks to kind of build a foundation for future veterans policy. Yeah. And the other part was we, we wanted to make sure we, we looked at the issue from all sides. And we wanted to get it, yes. everything out there because we, we felt like if you're going to have policy discussions, you need to understand the whole problem. Well, to that point, General, in terms of looking at both sides, as divided as our country is at the moment, is it possible for us to have a constructive national conversation that will result in a strategy that benefits both the individual veteran and the nation as a whole? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I do. Because one of the, one of the things that, that I've always found bipartisan support for is the military and, and veterans. And I know my personal experience with the Armed Services Committees and the Defense Appropriations Subcommittees and the Military Construction Committees, um, 
it was all about doing the right thing for the troops and that it really wasn't a partisan effort and I, and I don't have the, the the same level of experience with the with the veterans committees but I suspect it's it, it's it's the same yeah and so I, that's what gives me uh confidence uh that people can can move forward on this because it, it's important it, it's not just what we're suggesting in the book is is not just to do things that make life easier for veterans. It's leveraging the investment that we've made in these veterans of the all-volunteer force to make the country better. And I think that's a great start point for discussions. We have just a short time remaining in our conversation. What is your call to action for audience members? And what would you like to see them do to further the national discussion that you want to have happen? Well, I think to make this part of the the entire discussion and wherever, you know, and, and as I said before, and 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 legislatures and VSOs and wherever to understand that this is a phenomenon that's occurred. The all-volunteer veteran is a phenomenon of of, of the current. It's been it's about 54% now of veterans will of course rise as time goes by. And and that the particularly the capacities they have need to be considered. If there's one theme in the book, one of the themes in the book is that these individuals have a lot of capacities, a lot of talents. And it's, as George said, it's good for the country that we use those. The country needs them, in fact. And I think those points need to be part of informing discussions about how to deal with veterans, how to bring out the return on investment that's made for them in the military and the many other topics, how to change the perceptions, many other topics that, and, and the benefits and how many other topics we discussed in the book. To find a cop, I'm sorry, go ahead, General. No, I was, I, I was just going to say, you know, we need to look at this through the lens of the next 50 years of the all-volunteer force and, and how, how we treat our veterans and the perceptions of veterans affect our ability to do that because the, the all-volunteer force is not a given. You know, we, we, the, the draft was only in place from, from 48 to, to 73. That's only 25 years. So, so it's not a given we're never going back. And, and we, ha we have to think about the veterans and how perceptions and treatment of veterans affects our ability to serve that volunteer force. And to find a copy of the book, just Google Joel Coopersmith and George W. Casey. <laughs> Dr. Joel Coopersmith, General George W. Casey Jr., thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Great, Chris. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you same time, same place. Until then, keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.